Hello, and welcome to Church in Maine, the podcast that is at the intersection of faith and modern life. My name is Dennis Sanders, and I am your host. This is a solo episode, and um, it is, um, in the past, I've last, more recently, I've when I've done these solo episodes, it has usually been um, kind of sharing the videos that I do on a weekly basis, um, the weekly check-in. Um, this one is not that. This one is actually an article I wrote. Um, it first appeared on my Church of Maine Substack, and then I also shared it on Medium, um, where I've been sharing uh, articles I've written over the years. And um, it kind of blew up there. Um, and so I thought it would make some sense to do a um, kind of an audio version of it for people. Um, the main gist of it is um, an article I read from uh, Musa Al-Garbi. He works with Interfaith America, and he wrote an interesting article basically about what's causing kind of the belief that um, white evangelicals are kind of the the reason that Trump is uh, – Donald Trump became so powerful, especially – um, in the GOP and, and also became president. And um, his findings um, notes that that may not be the case. Um, the case actually is a lot more complex. And it also kind of brings up kind of a lot of different issues, um, especially race um, and religion and um, where those two intersect. And uh, this one is actually kind of. Um, I don't know if I want to say personal for me. I, I grew up evangelical. And so, you know, this and the name of this essay is that these are not the evangelicals you are looking for. Yes, this is a Star Wars reference. Um, and I think the whole point of that was that it's he I will um the article will explain it a little bit more, but I think one of the things that I think has always bugged me when um the media talks about evangelicals is really the invisibility of um, anyone who isn't of evangelicals who aren't white. Non-white evangelicals almost, it seems, don't exist. Um, And the fact is, they do. Um, And so that's part of what this article is about, um, though it specifically is related to Trump. And so that's kind of the basis of the article. And so I will um, let you go and let you listen to this, and then I will come back with some uh, closing thoughts. So here is my essay, These Are Not the Evangelicals You Are Looking For. White Evangelical. Ever since Donald Trump's surprise win in 2016, I've heard that phrase over and overused by journalists, academics, pastors, writers, and others. It has been used to describe who was most responsible for putting Trump in the White House, and it's launched many a career as folks seem to, quote unquote, understand this segment that supposedly was so beneficial to Trump. <laughs> 
White evangelical has become a shorthand way of usually calling people racist, homophobic, nationalist, sexist, and every other bad attribute. It's a way of saying that there is something wrong with these people and that they are to blame for what ails our society and are a threat to democracy itself. But what if the picture is far more complicated? What if white evangelicals are not the dangerous monolith that we fear, but a group that is far more nuanced? And why does it always seem that evangelicals are, o- are always assumed to be only white? Why are evangelicals of color practically erased from the consciousness of Americans? Back in December, Musa Al-Garbi, a columnist for Interfaith America, wrote about the white evangelical vote and how it isn't the big story we thought it was. Al-Gaharbi looked at the historical vote of evangelicals going back to the 1960s. Back then, they tended to vote for Democrats, especially in 1964, when they voted against Republican Barry Goldwater. In 1968 and 72, they voted for Nixon because of their wariness of the counterculture, even though they supported civil rights. In 1976, they moved to Carter, then Reagan in 1980. Evangelicals remained in the Republican column after Reagan, though that support cooled. It peaked again with George W. Bush in 2000 and remained strong with the GOP ever since. Al Garby says that the real question isn't the one we've been asking since 2016, which is, why are white evangelicals voting for Trump? The question shouldn't be directed at white evangelicals, but should be directed towards the people asking the question. Quote, As historian Sam Hasselby emphasized, given that white evangelical voting behavior has been so consistent in recent decades, the real question is not why they voted for Trump in 2016 and beyond. They cast their ballot in similar proportions for the GOP in all other midterm and presidential elections since the turn of the century. Instead, the interesting question is, why have long-standing white evangelical voting behavior suddenly become such an intense fixation among journalists and scholars after Trump? Many popular assumptions for explaining heightened contemporary levels of white evangelical support for the Republic of the Republican Party are demonstrably false. For instance, given that the modern pa- pattern began with the 2000 election, the support was clearly not a response to 9/11, the war on terror or a desire to carry out a crusade against Islam, unquote. These same journalists and scholars might believe that white evangelicals became radicalized after the election of Barack Obama as the first African-American to become president. Nope. Agarby says, quote, The white evangelical alliance with the GOP was not a racialized response to Obama. In fact, the GOP... Did, little worse, did a little worse than average with white evangelicals in 2008 precisely because many decided to cast ballots for the nation's first black president in spite of, or perhaps even because of, extreme evangelical Sarah Palin's presence on the GOP ticket. Al Garby notes that the white vote among Republicans declined in 2016 and 2018 and 2020, which means that white evangelicals dropped Trump along with other voters over time. But many still think that white evangelicals are outliers in comparison to the rest of society on issues of race or sexuality, and that is true, 
to a point. Survey shows that white evangelicals are far less racist or homophobic than their counterparts in the early 70s. However, the rest of society, especially high, highly educated white liberals, have zoomed farther ahead on those issues. So it can seem that white evangelicals are racist when the reality is far more complex. But let's jump to the conclusion here. What is driving the evangelical vote towards Trump and Trump-like candidates isn't white evangelicals. It's non-white evangelicals. Are you surprised? Maybe you shouldn't be. As America becomes browner, it would make sense that people of color would also become more conservative. Al Garby adds, quote, A small part of the reason evangelicalism is declining less rapidly than other Christian faith traditions is that many white Republicans have come to call themselves evangelical as an apparent sign of their political identity post-2016. However, the main factor allowing evangelical evangelicalism to persist in recent decades relative to other forms of Christianity has been shifts among non-whites. Indeed, white evangelicals comprise a significantly smaller share of evangelicals overall than they have in the past. Critically, non-white evangelicals tend to be broadly aligned ideologically with, with white evangelical peers and, even, and are even more conservative than whites on many issues. Non-white evangelicals also vote for the GOP at a significantly higher level than other non-whites. They are about twice as likely to cast ballots for Republicans. There is a reason to believe they will align ever more tightly with the Republican Party in future cycles. Indeed, minority voters are becoming more broadly Minority voters have more broadly have been consistently migrating away from the Democratic Party consistently since 2010. Al Garvey repeats it again. The reason the political right in America is so strong isn't because of white evangelicals, because their vote hasn't really changed over in, in over 20 years. It's non-white evangelicals that have been driving the drivers of the magnified Republican Party. That leads to the question Al Garvey has been working, asking throughout this article. Why isn't, isn't, why aren't pundits and scholars so willing to not, to avoid talking about this fact? I think the answer to me is very simple. Narratives. We have all, we all have certain narratives and biases that really place in certain situations. A year ago, I wrote a story on a dust-up involving National Public Radio and their Supreme Court reporter, Nina Totenberg. A story involving Justices Neil Gorsuch and Sonia Sotomayor was written in a way to suggest that there was dissension among the respective conservative and liberal justices. But the reality was that there was no animosity between the two, and they issued a joint press release to make it very clear that they were friends, not enemies. But NPR and Totenberg never backed down on the story, as I wrote back then. I think Totenberg and others wanted to see the court as a place where there was partisan bickering going on. I'm not saying that they intentionally made up the story. I am saying that the pull to write the story according to a certain narrative in that court, in that the court is a partisan place where conservatives are jerks, just like conservatives outside the court. Unquote. And let's look at another example, the Covington Catholic controversy. 
How many of us have seen the image of a Native American man playing drums in the face of a teen with a MAGA hat who seemed to be smirking? There was a lot of self-righteousness about who was right and who was wrong. But in time, a more complicated picture emerged that showed that all was not what it seemed. But many people had their narratives ready to go, and they went to town. Evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, are seen as rather odd by progressive-leaning scholars and pundits. They seem to have weird views on abortion or sexuality. Progressives uh, tend to think people of color are most are almost always progressive in their political and economic orientation. They are seen usually as victims of oppression by white Americans and in the mind of some progressives by those same white evangelicals. It's weird enough to imagine non-white evangelicals. You rarely hear pundits, journalists, or scholars talk about non-white evangelicals, let alone imagine that they would vote for the guy that said during the can- his campaign kickoff that Mexican immigrants were rapists. It's easy to hate on white evangelicals because people think they fit the narrative buzzing in their brains. You might not like the one Uncle Tom that favors Trump, When there are hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people of color that support Trump, well, the brain does not compute. I would add that I'm not sitting here above the fray as if I've never thought negatively about white evangelicals and not really paid attention to non-white Trump voters. I'm guilty on both accounts. Nor am I saying that all white evangelicals are innocent. But the whole painting of a group of people as basically fascists in our midst wasn't all wasn't always the simplest story of good versus evil. But to do this means asking tough questions. One of the surprising notes of the 2020 election was the number of non-whites that voted for Trump. Why did they vote for him in spite of this perceive of his perceived racism? Why did they not vote for Democrats and for Joe Biden? Why do Democrats need to what do Democrats need to do to earn that non-white vote? As the 2024 presidential race starts to heat up, it would behoove journalists and scholars that might have animosity towards white evangelicals and share affinity with non-whites to be willing to be critical and ask those hard questions. As Al Garby concludes in his essay, we want to understand the political right in America today. It's time to start asking some uncomfortable questions and set aside some preconceived narratives. So that was the essay. And um, I hope you enjoyed it. I hope it was thought-provoking. I'd love to know what you think. Uh, there is, you can leave a comment um, if you're reading this or, or listening to this on Substack. Um, and you can also send me an email uh, to share your thoughts, um, opinions. Um, and you can share that to church and main, all one word, at substack.com. Um, also, if you want, you can uh, leave a donation. Um, I'm still trying to kind of test out and suss out um, 
whether or not I'm going to kind of use the um, the paid feature on Substack and um, putting things behind paywall. Um, you know, I've tried it a little bit, but nothing much has happened, and I kind of want to have a see if anyone's actually interested. Um, I know there are some people that are interested and will pay for things like uh, behind paywalls, but if you have extra articles, extra things, um, other people don't seem to care. So um, in the meantime, if you would like to make a donation, and I would definitely be grateful if you did, um, you can also um, make a one-time donation. And um, I'm kind of making that easy for folk. Um, if you want to make a donation, uh, there is a link in the sh- in the this, um, description, um, show description, and you should be able to see it there. Um, it's also just fairly simple. Um, also to remember, it's buymeacoffee.com backslash Dennis L. Sanders. So buymeacoffee.com backslash Dennis L. Sanders, and um, you can leave a donation there. Um, and whatever you can give, that would be great. Um, that would be helpful. Um, and and if you want to know a little bit more or, or visit the website, um, and also I'd love that you would subscribe. You can subscribe on the Substack page, subscribe on your favorite podcast app um, while you're there wherever on your podcast app, consider leaving a review. Um, I'd love to hear what you're thinking about this podcast. So, um, and also if you want to, um, go to the Substack, since I've been rattling on about it, it is church in Maine, all one word dot substack.com. So that's it for this solo episode of church in Maine. Stay tuned. There will be more, um, interviews coming up in the near future. And um, again, would love to hear what you think about this article. So I'll be waiting to hear your thoughts. That's it for this episode of Church in Maine. This is episode 133. Take care, everyone. Godspeed. And I will see you very soon.